Cornerfringe Ministries presents part one of Daniel Joseph's teaching on the dangers of blasphemy. Enjoy. I had a somewhat of a rough week this week, but I made it through. I'm here. We're okay. Um... Today's message, we're going to look at the sin of blasphemy. And I anticipated only doing one week, you know, like I said, I kind of warned you guys that I only want to, uh, I'm going to do a bunch of one-hit wonders, if you will. Um, but this looks like it's going to, we might uh, go into a second week on this particular uh, subject matter. One of the things that we are going to do today is the first thing I want to show you is how the Bible defines blasphemy, how it defines this sin. And I think it might surprise some of you that the actual definition is going to be a little bit broader than what you originally thought. Uh, the other thing I want to do is I also want to look at what the penalty is for this sin. The Bible's very clear that there is a penalty for the sin of blasphemy. The Old Testament, or the Tanakh, the Torah, it specifies what the penalty is, and it's interesting because that penalty is actually confirmed in the New Testament, as I will show you today. And then lastly, I'm actually going to address one of the scariest, one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. And it concerns blasphemy. It's a very intense passage. So with that said, kind of giving you an overview, I want to begin today by getting some of the formalities out of the way and look at how blasphemy is defined on the most basic, simplistic level. And I want to do this by taking you to Erdman's Bible Dictionary to show you how they define blasphemy. And this is what is said. Blasphemy, the sin of consciously using derogatory language about God. Secondly, it is the reviling, mocking, and slandering of another human being. Now, when we think of blasphemy, what was just said at the beginning of this statement, this the sin of consciously using derogatory language about God, this is typically what comes to our minds, Right? Um, how many can attest to this? When we think of blasphemy, we think somebody is cursing God with their mouth. Well, and rightfully so, because that is legitimately blasphemous. You are committing blasphemy. Let me give you a great example of this. We have an example found in the Torah. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 10, we read, Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. Moving on to verse 11. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed, uh, it's actually Nakab in the Hebrew, blasphemed the name of the Lord and Kalal and cursed. And so they brought him to Moshe. His mother's name was Shilomit, the, the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. Okay, so when we think of blasphemy, it's stories like this that come to our mind. This is almost our knee-jerk, our cognitive knee-jerk reaction to when we hear the word blasphemy. However, having said this, it's important for you to understand that this isn't the only act that constitutes blasphemy. According to Scripture, this is not the only act. Actually, a true biblical definition is much broader. And I want to give you an example of this so that you understand what it really is. Moving to Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 2, verse 17, this is what we read. Indeed, you are called a Jew. Let me give you a little backdrop. This is the Apostle Paul, who himself is a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, right? A Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. He is speaking directly at this point in this epistle to his fellow brethren. Okay? And he says, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law. Now, one thing I, I, I want to 
add a disclaimer here, he's going to go on a litany of praise for his fellow brethren of what they've been called to. In other words, this is a beautiful glorification, a beautiful lifting up, this passage in here. So here he says, Indeed you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, rest on Torah, and make your boast in God, and know His will. Okay? It's it's so interesting. Why do they know His will? Because they rest on the law. This... It's interesting, this passage, it takes me back in time. I had a gal come up to me, very intense. And she comes up, she says, Daniel, I have to ask you a question. I said, oh, no problem. She goes, in five words or less, define Torah. And it kind of took me by surprise. Nobody's asked me that question. In five words or less, define Torah. So I I, I thought for a moment, and she's like, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I said, no, it's okay. I said, it's the will of God, literally, in five words. Because that's exactly what Torah is. It is the will of God. And this is what you're seeing Paul say here. You know his will, okay? They know his will because they are resting in the law. And approve the things that are excellent. Well, how are they approving the things that are excellent? Being instructed out of Torah. They're receiving instructions. Remember what Torah means. It means instruction. And are confident Look at this. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light. Look at the terminology used here. A light. We know the Torah is a lamp, right? A light unto thy path, okay? A light to those who are in darkness. You think about when Yeshua turned to his disciples and said, you are the light of the world. The apostle Paul is turning to his Jewish brethren and saying the exact same thing that Yeshua said to his apostles. You are Supposed to be the light of the world. Isaiah confirms this. Read the prophecies in Isaiah. It talks that the Jewish people will be a light to the nations. I will give you as a light to the nations. So here we see this just beautiful litany of praise. A light to those who are in darkness. Moving to verse 20. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So here's, unfortunately, where the praise ends. Here's, unfortunately, where he outlines their beautiful responsibility to the rest of the world. As he continues, listen very closely. In verse 21, we read, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, where does Paul go? When he thinks of Torah, where is he going? He's going to the heartbeat of Torah, the Ten Commandments. You should not steal, you should not commit adultery. This is straight from the heartbeat of Torah. This is the Ten Commandments. So he's saying, do you do these things? You're out preaching Torah. You're instructing the ignorant You're raising up the babes. Are you actually keeping these things? And listen to what he says in verse 23. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. The name of God is blasphemed because of you. This is amazing. In other words, what do we find here regarding the sin of blasphemy. We find that it's not just about sinning with our mouths. It's not just about cursing God with our mouths. But even if we break His commandments while proclaiming that we are His servants, then we fall victim also. We fall under that category of blasphemy. If our actions fail to line up with the Word of God, yet we take the precious and holy name of Yeshua on our lips... You are walking as a blasphemer. Starts to open up your perspective a little bit, doesn't it? And when you start considering your walk with the Lord and what that looks like, I want you to ponder the term blasphemer. Are you a blasphemer? Test yourselves to know whether you're in the faith, right? That's what the Apostle Paul says. Now, I want to piggyback on what Paul just said here. In Romans chapter 2, because he says the exact same thing in Galatians 2, he articulates it a little bit differently, and it's beautiful. So I want to go to Galatians 2, 
But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, I, I suppose I should give you a little backdrop here. I didn't put the previous verses up here. But here's the backdrop to this, for those of you who didn't go through my Galatian study. The backdrop is, is here's the believers, they're hanging out in Antioch, Jew and Gentile. And Peter, obviously being one of the preeminent apostles, is there with them. And what was happening is men of Judea, renowned men, coming from the apostles in Jerusalem, were coming down to Antioch. And when they came down, Peter was withdrawing himself from the Gentiles. He felt pressured. Well, why? Well, you have to think about for thousands of years, the Jews did not eat with Gentiles. This is forbidden. It was unclean to eat with a Gentile. They would never do such a thing. God called them to be separate, to be sanctified, to be holy. They would never do such a thing as that. And so here you have this backdrop of messing with thousands of years of tradition, of what they're used to, of separating themselves from the nations. And this is what's taking place. And so Paul comes on the scene and notice what he says, when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And it's so critical you understand this component. The truth of the gospel. The truth that the Gentiles were now made clean through faith in the Messiah Yeshua. They were no longer unclean. They were no longer uncircumcised because they were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Colossians 2.11 so when Paul comes on the scene, he realizes that they're, they're not being, there's no integrity here in regard to the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews. Now, what does he mean here? If you, if you live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, what do Gentiles do? do? They do exactly what Paul said at the first, at the first part of 14. They don't adhere to the truth of the gospel. This is what Gentiles are. They're unclean. They do not adhere to truth. They don't adhere to Torah. Okay, so here's what, here's what he says. If you being a Jew, and the Jew is supposed to be the light to the world, if you being a Jew live in the manner of a Gentile, it's like saying if you being a clean person live in the manner of an unclean and not as the clean or not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews. In other words, how can you, Peter, go out, being a Jew, being a proclaimer of light, trans attempting to transform the Gentiles when you yourself are acting like a Gentile? You can't do it. How can you possibly get away with that? So that's the whole premise here. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, moving on to verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Messiah Yeshua, even we, we who? We Jews. This is we Jews. Even we Jews have believed in Messiah Yeshua that we might be justified by faith in Mashiach and not by works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Well, the Tanakh confirms that. Because Psalms talks about there is none righteous, no, not one. There's not a righteous man who does good and does not sin. Ecclesiastes. We go to Romans 3. Paul quotes these things. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. I mean, this is the problem. There's, there's, you know, they're not unclear about this issue. Therefore, Jews and Gentiles can only be saved one way, and that is through faith. However, does this mean that Paul is saying, well, now we can go on and walk any way we like? No, look at what he says as he continues on in verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Mashiach, we ourselves are also found sinners. What is sin? First John 2, 3. Sin is transgression of the law. First John 3, 4, sorry. Sin is transgression of the law, Right? But if while we seek to be justified by Mashiach, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Mashiach therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. In other words, pay close attention to what Paul is saying. It's the exact same thing he just said in Romans. If you take the holy name of Yeshua upon your lips, you profess your devotion to him, yet 
you continue on in lawlessness, you now elevate that Mashiach, that Christ, and say, he is a minister of sin. Your works that you go out are supposed to emulate the one you follow. You think about the Talmudim, you think about the disciples that followed their rabbi. They look just like the rabbi, they talk just like the rabbi. You go back in history, you would know who you're talking to by the way they behaved. You could identify the disciples to that specific rabbi. If you're of Rabbi Yeshua, you will walk and talk like Rabbi Yeshua. But if you don't, this is where we get into the sin of blasphemy. If you go on in Torahlessness, if you go on walking in the ways of your own eyes, like Israel had fallen to at times, and then you still profess Jesus is Lord. He is my Savior. Yeshua is Lord. But you're walking in ungodliness. You are stating Messiah Yeshua is a minister of sin. And God forbid your actions should do such things. That is blasphemy. And it makes me tremble to know how careful I have to walk. It makes me tremble to understand a biblical definition of what blasphemy really is. Going to 2 Timothy, look at what Paul says here on the heels of what we just looked at. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His and let everyone who names the name of Mashiach depart from iniquity. If you dare take the holy name of Yeshua upon your lips and commit your life to Him, because if you don't, there is no salvation, there is no hope for you. But if you do this, there is one road to go down, and that is the narrow path, and that is moving towards Him. There's no turning back. You cannot look back like Lot's wife. You're as good as dead. There's no options. Only one option to move forward in relationship with the Lord Yeshua. You must depart from iniquity or you will become a blasphemer. Listen to what Paul says to Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober. Okay, so first he addresses the men. The older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Now he addresses the women. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, verse 4, that they admonish their young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. This is the requirement, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The requirement, men, upon us is great to walk in holiness. But it doesn't end there. It also comes to you, women, to wives, to mothers, the way you conduct your lives as wives and mothers in your home, out of your home, in front of the community, out of the community, could be interpreted as blasphemous if, in fact, you stray from the faith. Your actions bear testimony of who you are. It's very intense, amen? And, you know, this whole concept, you know, I've been in the New Testament with all of this. All of this, this is not a new concept that all of a sudden we get to the New Testament and now all of a sudden, if we don't walk in righteousness, you know, then we're blasphemers. This goes back to Tanakh. We go back to Ezekiel, the prophet, Ezekiel 20, verse 27. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, in, uh, in this too your fathers have blasphemed me. How? By being unfaithful. By being unfaithful to God, you become blasphemers. Simple point I'm trying to make here is that blaspheming According to Scripture, well, it has a much broader definition than just speaking curses against God with your mouth. It involves your commitment. It involves your actions, whether or not you are walking according to the commandments of God. Let me take this to another level. 
in the sense of defining blasphemy. Going to the Gospel of Matthew, towards the end of the Gospel, we find that Yeshua, he's on trial, okay? He's ready to be crucified. We read the following dialogue, and this is what it says. But Yeshua kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath. This is the high priest speaking, the Kohen Gadol. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Mashiach, the Son of God. Yeshua said to him, it is, as, it is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Yeshua is actually quoting from Daniel 7 here. It's very intense. So there's no ambiguity between this high priest and Yeshua. In verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What was it that Yeshua said that was perceived so blasphemous? Well, it's obvious. He made himself the son of God. Thus, he made himself God. This is why we read over and over again in the Gospel of John, they wanted to stone him. He made himself. I and my Father are one. That's it. They want to stone him. He made himself God. John 19, when you read what actually put him on the cross, the testimony that put Yeshua on the cross was that he made himself the Son of God. And in their eyes, that was committing blasphemy. Now, my point here is, is, yes, had any other man but Yeshua, who knew no sin, had any other man made that claim, that is a blasphemous statement. You cannot make yourself God. If you lift yourself up like Hasatan, like Satan, and make yourself God, attempt to sit on his throne to receive his glory, you are a blasphemer. And this is where pride comes in. We can be blasphemers through pride. You want a second you feel pride and arrogance coming down, you want to run for your life. So, when we look to the Bible to see what blasphemy is, we discover the term simply has a much broader definition than what at least some of us might originally thought. It could be cursing with the mouth, it could be disobedience to God's commandments, or it could be lifting yourself up as God to receive worship. All of these things fall under the category of blasphemy. Which brings us to our next point that I want to cover. What is the biblical remedy for committing this sin? What does the Bible say is the penalty for blasphemy? Well, let's go back to the story we opened up with. With the two men fighting and the one man uh, whose father was an Egyptian, he cursed God. Let's go back and see what the penalty for blasphemy is. Leviticus 24, verse 12. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. In other words, the penalty for cursing God for blaspheming the God of Israel, it's death. Now you might be thinking, well, you know, Daniel, nobody is really following this harsh judgment today. This barbaric behavior, this was reserved only for those under the old covenant. This is no longer legitimate. We, we don't handle things like this anymore. Well, let me say this. The fact that we don't carry out the prescribed judgment uh, according to the Torah it doesn't negate the reality of the judgment and the penalty for blasphemy. In other words, what I'm saying is that you shouldn't breathe easy because this punishment isn't being carried out today, right? Because make no mistake, there is a judgment coming and the penalty will be carried out and it is death. It's what Revelation calls the second death. Let me take you to Colossians 3.6. Even Paul picks up on the penalty. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now here's an eye-opener. 
Paul is identifying wrath is coming. We are to persuade men with fear and trembling. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Wrath of God is coming, what Revelation calls the wrath of the Lamb. And who is it coming upon? The sons of disobedience. Well, let's look at some of the descriptions of the sons of disobedience. And which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. He lists blasphemy. Filthy language out of your mouth. The bottom line here is, is that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, of which one of the descriptors used here is blasphemers. Right? But let me say this, you have to be, when you chart these waters, you have to be very careful what you say. Let me add a disclaimer, this is referring to those who have not repented, who have not asked Yeshua to forgive their sins, right? You don't ask for forgiveness, whatever sin you've committed, you don't ask for forgiveness, you have but one expectation, the death penalty. That's what you can expect in the judgment to come. So just to recap what we've covered thus far, we've looked at some basic, very simplistic definitions for blasphemy. We've looked at the penalty for blasphemy. But now, I want to take you to the heart of today's message and I want to show you one of the most terrifying and controversial passages in all of Scripture. And this passage I'm talking about is actually found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it is interesting that Matthew seems to hit home runs with scariest passages ever. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, and this particular one in Matthew chapter 12. And look at what it says. The one, uh, then one was brought to Yeshua who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. This guy's in rough shape. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Moving on to verse 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, or in Hebrew, Baalzebub, literally means in Hebrew, the Lord of the flies. This was the God of Ekron. And something that you need to understand is that, in, uh, definitely according to first century Jewish ideology, they saw the God of Ekron, or Baalzebub, as the Lord over all demons. It's the Lord of the flies signifying demons. Okay, This is who they saw him. And so this is the charge by the Pharisees to Yeshua, that he doesn't cast out demons except by the ruler of demons. Moving on to verse 25. But Yeshua knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Baalzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now this statement, anytime I cover this statement, I go into what I'm about to bring you into. In verse 28, Yeshua says something fascinating. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. When you read Luke's account of this very story, exact same story, but Luke's account, it's recorded differently. And it's not by accident. I believe it's completely intentional. It is recorded a little bit differently because it opens up a world of understanding. Luke records that when you read it, it actually says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the finger of God. Well, for me, when you study in the Bible, that opens up a whole world of understanding, especially when I know the Mount Sinai account and what happened at Mount Sinai. What were we told? How were the commandments of God, the mitzvot 
applied to the stone tablets. It's explicit. I've read it in the Hebrew. It is with the finger of God. I just learned something about the finger of God. You learn something about the finger of God in the Gospels. That it is the Spirit of God. In other words, when they were at Mount Sinai, and it says the finger of God inscribed upon the tablets the commandments, it was the Spirit of God inscribing upon those stone tablets. Fascinatingly enough, isn't it interesting, it is that very same Spirit that now inscribes the Torah on hearts of flesh. This is a beautiful thing. It opens up your understanding. So here we have um, Yeshua saying, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, this is how He's casting them out, by the finger of God. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Continuing on, this is where it gets really scary. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy, blasphemia in the Greek, will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Terrifying. We continue. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, and I, I just want to point something out so you can see a biblical pattern taking place here. All things are established on the testimony of two and three. You will find Yeshua make this statement back to back twice. Look at what he says. He's going to repeat himself. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. And here he goes again. But whoever speaks against the Ruach HaKodesh, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Hands down, one of the scariest passages you will ever read in all of Scripture. Absolutely one of those passages that for any believer, the first time they come and they're studying the Word, like myself, years back, and as you go through, you come across this, it makes you lose sleep at night. Everything else I was studying at that time immediately took a back seat because I was never under the impression there could ever possibly be an unforgivable sin. We can all be forgiven. That's what I grew, I grew up like. That. I never heard of such a thing. I never heard this. How could there be an unforgivable sin? That's impossible. The blood of Yeshua covers everything. What's more powerful than that? First time I came to this, I was terrified. Everything, backseat, all I cared about was this passage. I need to know what this means. How do I make sense of this? Statement of this magnitude requires investigation. Now, when one reads this statement, you can't help but be immediately prompted, probably, you know, you're probably like me, it prompts you to ask some very serious questions. The first one is, oh no, have I committed this sin? <laughs> have I done this? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Is there no hope for me? Am I lost? Is my fate sealed? It's one of the first questions you ask. Which leads you to another question though, a question we're going to address today. A question I just mentioned, we'll, we'll probably get to next week leads you to another question, which is critical in understanding the whole passage. Why is speaking against the Holy Spirit unforgivable? Why are all the other sins mentioned in Scripture, from murder to adultery to stealing to theft, whatever, why are all those forgivable and this one is not? What is it about the sin that cannot be forgiven? So in light of this very important question, we're going to spend some time on this. And we're going to dig a, a little bit deeper. And let me begin by saying, if we want to truly understand what's, what Yeshua is conveying here, first and foremost, we have to understand the context of the passage. This is Hermeneutics 101, right? We have to understand the context of the passage as a whole rather than simply going in, zeroing in on one particular statement, such as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's not going to be forgiven, rather than zeroing in on that, losing sight of everything else, 
We have to open up to the entire context if we want to be able to comprehend what Yeshua is, in fact, telling us. Because when we do, we're going to be given clues, if you will, or actual bits of information that are going to give us this beautiful understanding of why this sin is unforgivable. So having said that, I want to take you back to verse 28. Because in verse 28, we are given some critical information. In fact, it's the critical piece to the puzzle. This is what Yeshua said. Pay close attention. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. This statement that Yeshua makes right here is the secret key that unlocks the door and gives us our answer as to why blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. This, this statement right here, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now let me further explain. When Yeshua cast out the demon of the man, it wasn't just the man himself who had an intimate experience with God. All right, being touched by the Spirit, being healed. But rather, it was those who were present in the midst of this man who also had this intimate experience. They too literally experienced the kingdom of God. There's an intimate revelation. Now, it was the response. This is what you need to understand. It was the response to this experience that became the problem. Because of their response to this revelation, we find that they ended up doing something that the prophet Isaiah spoke against. He, when he was defining a characteristic of wicked, the wicked, they would do something. And what is that something? They would call good evil and evil good. Right? Let me read to you this passage, just briefly, just to give you a, a, a glimpse at what is being spoken here. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. This is interesting because what does Yeshua do? He rails upon the Pharisees for literally this for being wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And then it goes on. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, their roots will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust. Listen to this. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. This is defining the wicked. Those who call good evil and evil good and this is exactly what the pharisees were doing they looked at something beautiful holy righteous and good they were looking at the kingdom of god and they called it evil he does not cast out demons except by baal zavuv now you might be thinking well daniel that sounds great but i don't necessarily see how this clears up why this sin is unpardonable. Well, let me help give you some further insight, which is going to give you a deeper appreciation for that statement Yeshua makes that's on the screen right now. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And to help you appreciate what is actually being said here, I want to take you to the book of Enoch. This is going to blow your mind, what I'm going to show you. If you're new here today and you're not used to me, there are times that I go to the book of Enoch. And just as a disclaimer, the book of Enoch in the first century, among the first century Jews and believing Jews who put their faith in Yeshua, it was considered Scripture. We find fragments of it in multiple languages in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And more importantly to me, the book of Enoch is actually in the New Testament. It's literally quoted verbatim in the book of Jude. And it's not quoted as, well, here's some nice commentary. I'd like to impart this wisdom to you. It is quoted as inspired. Because the Jude actually begins, Enoch prophesied. Okay, we know holy men of God only spoke as they're moved by the Holy Spirit. 
according to Peter. In other words, Jude puts this in a context of what Enoch said is inspired, and he quotes Enoch literally. So with that little disclaimer, I want to take you to the book of Enoch, and the particular uh, passages I'm going to take you to are the backdrop to Genesis 6. And what's happened in Genesis 6? What was recorded? It talks about sons of God or angels from heaven coming down and fornicating with the daughters of men. Okay, so this is the backdrop that we're going to see uh, in the book of Enoch. And then in the whole point of going here is this is going to illuminate your understanding as to this statement that is on the screen right now and what it really means. Why it's unforgivable when someone experiences the kingdom of God. So going to the book of Enoch, chapter 12, verse 3, we read, And I, Enoch, was blessing the Lord of majesty and the king of the ages, and lo, the watchers, which is to say the angels, called me, Enoch the scribe, and said to me, verse 4, Enoch, thou scribe of righteousness, go declare to the watchers of the heaven who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women and have done as the children of earth do and have taken unto themselves wives. Ye have wrought great destruction on the earth. Verse 5. And ye shall have no peace nor forgiveness of sin. And inasmuch as they delight themselves in their children, because children were born unto them, the murder of their beloved ones shall they see, and over the destruction of their children shall they lament, and they shall uh, make supplication unto eternity, but mercy and peace shall ye not attain. Verse 1. And Enoch went and said, Azazel. Now a little backdrop on Azazel. He's one of the main culprits. One of the main angels who a lot of this sin was placed upon, Azazel, according to the book of Enoch, had actually taken secrets that were reserved only for heaven that were not to be imparted to men. And he brought those secrets and gave the men of earth these secrets, and he taught them all sorts of ungodliness. He taught them how to make swords, knives, shields. He taught them how to obviously work with metal. These things, men were never intended. We were never created to go to war and kill each other. And yet Azazel is held responsible for that ungodliness. So Enoch went and said, Azazel, thou shalt have no peace. A severe sentence has gone forth against thee to put thee in bonds. And thou shalt not have toleration nor request granted to thee because of the unrighteousness which thou hast taught and because of all the works of godlessness and unrighteousness and sin which thou hast shown men. Going to verse 3. Then I went and spoke to them all together, and they were all afraid. Now the number we're told, according to Enoch 6, Enoch chapter 6, was 200. 200 angels had gotten together to conspire to commit this sin. This is what happened. In fact, I'll just briefly read it to you and it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days and there were born to them beautiful daughters and the angels the children of heaven saw and lusted after them and said to one another come let us choose wives from among the children of men and let us get us children and Sam Jaza who was their leader said unto them I fear Ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. So this was a conspiracy of 200 angels from heaven, from Shemaim, getting together to make this descent down upon the daughters of men. All right, and we're in verse 3. Then I spoke, we'll start again. Then I spoke to them all together, and they were all afraid, and fear and trembling seized them. And they besought me to draw up a petition for them, that they might find forgiveness, and to read their petition in the presence of the Lord of heaven. 
For from thenceforward they could not speak with him, nor lift up their eyes to heaven, for shame of their sins for which they had been condemned. So, understand what is happening here. The angels who committed fornication with the women of the earth, they came to Enoch to have Enoch intercede on their behalf before the Lord. Now, it's worth pointing out, going back to chapter 6, when these angels got together, this is an important component. They knew what they were about to embark on was a great sin. In other words, they willfully were moving forward in sin, though they were eternal in nature. Very important component to process. Moving on to verse 6 now. Then I wrote out their petition, this is Enoch, and the prayer in regard to their spirits and their deeds individually and in regard to the request that they should have forgiveness and length. What is it talking about? It's talking about forgiveness of sins and eternity. Everlasting life. And I went off and sat down at the waters of Dan in the land of Dan to the south of the west of Hermon. I read their petitions till I fell asleep. Verse 8. And behold, a dream came to me and visions fell down upon me and I saw visions of chastisement and a voice came bidding me to tell it to the sons of heaven and reprimand them. And when I awakened, I came unto them, and they were all gathered together. We can only assume they all gathered together. There would have been 200 in number. Weeping in Abbas Yael, which is between Lebanon and Sennacherib, with their faces covered, verse 10. And I recounted before them all the visions which I had seen in sleep, and I began to speak the words of righteousness and to reprimand the heavenly watchers. Jumping ahead to verse chapter uh, 14, verse 4. The watchers, the children of heaven, I wrote out your petition. And in my vision, it appeared thus, that your petition will not be granted unto you throughout all the days of eternity, and that judgment has been finally passed upon you. Yea, your petition will not be granted unto you. So what happens here? We find that the angels who willfully sinned against God, leaving the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm, they're begging for forgiveness of sin here. And what are they told? Their request is denied. No forgiveness is going to be given to them. Does this sound familiar at all? Right? It should because this is exactly what's happening in Matthew 12. A situation has arose where Yeshua is telling us no forgiveness of sins will be given. Similar situations to each other. Both, Matthew 12, no forgiveness. Enoch, no forgiveness. What's the connection that I'm trying to make? Well, as we continue, you are going to see the connection, and this is going to start to unfold. Enoch chapter 15, verse 1, and he answered and said to me, and I heard his voice, Fear not, Enoch, thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Approach hither and hear my voice, and go say to the watchers of heaven who have sent thee to intercede for them, you should intercede for men and not men for you. And so the first rebuke is, you angels have it completely backwards. You are supposed to be interceding on men, and here you have a man interceding on your behalf. Completely backwards scenario. And you're going to find this. It's, it's so interesting, some of the parallels that I will bring out next week to you when I show you some of the wicked and what the wicked have done in Scripture who were at one time righteous. They're at one time righteous, but moved in lawlessness. There is an identical pattern here. It's very scary. So moving on to verse 3, we read, Wherefore ye have left the high, holy, eternal heaven, and lain with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men, and taken yourselves wives, and done like the children of the earth, and begotten giants as your sons. Verse 4. And though ye were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life. Did you catch that? Though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women and have begotten children, 
with the blood of flesh, and as the children of men have lusted after flesh and blood, as those also do who die and perish. Verse 5. We're coming to the end here. Therefore, have I given them wives also that they might impregnate them and beget children by them, that thus um, nothing might be wanting to them on the earth? But you were formerly spiritual. And it's interesting the descriptor used here. Formally, you were formally spiritual, living the eternal life and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore, I have not appointed wives for you, for as for the spiritual ones of the heaven, in heaven is their dwelling. And I know we had to go a long way here, but did you catch what was conveyed here in verses 4 through 7? Because the angels were spiritual beings, because they dwelt in the kingdom of God, they experienced the kingdom of God. They experienced immortality. We find that they would not receive forgiveness of sins because of this. You making the connection? This gives us amazing insight into Matthew 12. Think about what happened when Yeshua cast out the demon. What happened in the midst of the people? What happened? The same thing that happened to the angels of God in heaven. Let me take you back there. I want to reread this. Look at what happened in Matthew 12. This is Yeshua's account. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, what happened? Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So do you see the connection that exists here? When one experiences the kingdom of God, when it has drawn near them, and yet they willfully choose to turn away, we are told there is no forgiveness of sins. The Pharisees didn't just question the miracle. They willingly rejected the miracle that Yeshua did. Thus, they willingly rejected the kingdom of God. And they didn't just, weren't just staring at the kingdom of God face to face. They were staring at it face to face and calling it wickedness. It is the un forgivable sin this is why it is unforgivable and i have a lot more commentary to add to this going to the new testament but we're not going to do that today we're going to go into next week and do that so we're going to end here for today we can bring the music team back up shabbat shalom